Well, it's good to be here together, and uh, praise the Lord for that, and hello to all those who are joining us online. And uh, as we have been going through this series uh, on the church, we now come to a, a challenging a topic. You can turn to Matthew 16. I'll meet you there uh, in a minute. We're going to be talking today about the topic of church discipline. Church discipline. It only makes sense that if we have a proper understanding of salvation and baptism and how that relates to membership of the church, that, that when someone is baptized, they, they are recognizing that they're part of the universal church and, and in light of that are joining a local church. And if, if there is a membership, a recognized body of believers, and that ongoing recognition takes place with the, with the practice of the Lord's Supper, that when we pass one loaf, we remember Christ's body and also recognize that we are one body. If there is entrance into membership, baptism, and the ongoing practice in relation of membership, communion, then it would only make sense that there is a, a, a recognition that there are boundaries to that membership, and those boundaries can, in fact, be crossed. Now, some people who um, would have sort of a slanted or unbalanced view of grace or of mercy would say, why would the church ever want to practice something like discipline? Isn't following Jesus about forgiveness and about acceptance? But just, just think about a couple of other examples in our contemporary world. Think about the people for the, for the equitable treatment of animals. Think about PETA. And imagine if a member of that organization were to saunter into one of their meetings wearing a fur coat, rattleskin snake uh, boots, and eating a veal sandwich. That wouldn't go very well, would it? There would, action would need to be taken to have that person give an account for why they are dressed like that and, and why they're eating that particular meal. Think about the uh, electrical safety authority, the people that give licenses to the electricians who come and work on a building like this or work in our home. Imagine if they just started to, you know, install circuit breakers in proximity to bathtubs. The, the license would be, would be removed. Think about the Ontario College of Teachers. This is the licensing board. I used to uh, be registered with the Ontario College of Teachers when I was a high school teacher. Imagine if, a, if a, a teacher in science class were to start to teach that the world is flat, or in history that the Nazis had some good ideas, or in math class that two plus two equals five. Well, the Ontario College of Teachers would then have to step in and say, no, no, what you're teaching is wrong. And if they persisted in this, then their, their license to teach would be removed, just like a, a membership in PETA could be removed or your license as, as an electrician. So this, this kind of discussion is, is all around us, this idea of, of membership and discipline. You see, for every follower of Jesus Christ, there's really two expectations on their life. One is for transformation and the other is for representation. Transformation and that we're, we're, we, are, we are believing that someone has been born again. We're going to witness a baptism later. And when someone is baptized, they go under the water, symbolizing death, burial with Jesus, that their old life is over and they come out of the water cleansed and risen to newness of life. So we expect Christians to live a transformed life, transformation, but also representation. We expect Christians to represent the church and to represent the name of Christ. So we need to be 
We need to be intentional in our understanding of church discipline. In fact, when we think about our mission statement, which is fulfilling the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment, the, our, our commission, Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the, name, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Take a close look at the word disciple. Look how closely related the word disciple is to discipline. Discipline is part of discipleship. To, to be a disciple means to be a learner, to be a student. And discipline is part of, of learning. It's part of being a student. Jesus explains, how do you make disciples? You baptize them and you teach them. Disciples are learners. They need discipline, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded. So we're making disciples. That's the Great Commission. The Great Commandment is to love God and love our neighbor. And so we discipline around the areas of people following the teaching of Jesus to love God and their neighbor. So I have an announcement for you today. You are all under church discipline. All of you watching at home, you are under church discipline. Now, when you hear that, there's a certain weight to that because when we normally hear that phrase, we think about church discipline taken to the ultimate extreme, the ultimate end, the worst case scenario. But that's, that's just a very narrow view of what church discipline actually means. Church discipline is, is really, it's the teaching. There, there's, there's two ways to really de define and describe church discipline. It falls under two categories. One is it's formative. That's what's happening right now. This is formative church discipline. I'm trying to teach you how to observe everything Jesus has commanded. I'm trying to form you. I'm trying to help you grow. And hopefully I'm being formed in the process as well. So there's formative church discipline, which we almost never talk about. We just take for granted. But it's happening all of the time because disciples are learners. But then there is, and this is what we're going to be talking about today, which most of us think about is corrective church discipline. And again, we often have too narrow of a view of what it means for a church to be engaged in corrective church discipline. It's not just something that the leaders of a church do to impose on particular members. No, it's something that every member actually participates in. And so it affects all of us. It involves all of us. And so let's pray that God would help us understand uh, what his word has to say on this important topic. And so Heavenly Father, we come to you right now and we know that there are many people who are coming to this church with a number of different experiences, some positive and some negative, some within the context of this own church family, some of it in the context of other churches or other organizations, Lord. But God, we ask right now that your word would speak truth. Lord, that we would hear your voice speaking through your living and active word, that we would be formed, and if necessary, that we would be corrected in our thinking about this topic of discipline. Lord, we pray that you would guide us and help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're going to look at three components of healthy church 
discipline. And we're going to be talking mostly about this idea of corrective discipline. Here's the, here's the first thing we need to understand, and we're going to begin in Matthew 16, is that healthy church discipline must begin with a culture of constructive correction. A culture of constructive correction. This is what the church needs to be about. So if you haven't turned already, turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. This is where Jesus makes this incredible statement to Simon Peter. Peter had just declared that Jesus is the Christ. We'll pick it up in verse 17. Jesus says, Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And he says, and I tell you, you are Peter, which means rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So this is Jesus talking about building the church. Notice how high the stakes are. Jesus has mentioned church for the very first time in the New Testament, and he's already talking about hell, the gates of hell, and he's already talking about heaven, the keys to heaven. And he's sharing this with, with Peter. He, he, he tells Peter, you're going to be called rock from now on, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church, not necessarily on Peter, but on the declaration that Peter had made. And obviously, Peter is going to play a big role in making that declaration and in Acts chapter 2 and then later on when the gospel spreads to the Samaritans, Peter is there. And when it spreads to Cornelius, the Gentiles, Peter is there. He played an influential role, but it wasn't him. It was the declaration that Jesus was the Christ. That's how the church is built. It says the gates of hell won't prevail against it. We're, we're, the church is on offense. But he also says that that Jesus will give the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now, when I was a little kid growing up at summer camp at Camp Minioe, uh, they used to have this skit. This is actually, the skit is actually part of how I was converted, how I became a Christian. And in the skit, these different people were trying to get into heaven, but in order to get into heaven, they came across St. Peter at St. Peter's Gate. And St. Peter was the one who, who decided whether or not someone was supposed to get into heaven. And that, that was really based off a misunderstanding of this passage. Just goes to show bad theology. You know, I still end up getting saved through that skit, uh, even though it wasn't, uh, wasn't perfect. So there's still hope for me. But anyway, the, the, the keys, what Jesus is talking about with the keys is he's saying, when you preach that I'm the Christ, which means the Savior, the Messiah, Peter, when you make that declaration, you're going to be opening the door for heaven. Peter's not the one who decides who gets in or who gets out, but Peter is being used to open up that door and say, this is the way. What is the way? Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. When you declare that Jesus is the Christ, you're opening the door to the kingdom of heaven. And notice what he says. He says, what, whatever on earth, sorry, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, there's a footnote beside the word loosed at the end of verse 19 in our ESV Bibles. This, this grammatical phrase is a paraphrastic past perfect. And a more clearer translation would be not whatever you do on earth will be done in heaven, but whatever you do on earth shall have been done in heaven. 
Jesus isn't saying that heaven is just going to fall of suit whatever is decided on earth. And what he's saying is that what happens within the church is going to be a reflection of what is going on in heaven. It's not that the earth is what, what happens on earth in the earthly local church is, is binding over what happens in heaven. It's actually uh, the reverse. So there's much at stake when we're thinking about church. We're thinking about hell. We're thinking about heaven. We're thinking about eternity. Now turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. This is the next time the word church is used. Matthew 18, verse 15. And this is where we really begin to see this culture of constructive correction laid out. In verse 15 it says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There's that phrase again. Again, I say to you, if, if two... If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So here Jesus is telling us what to do when someone has sinned against us. Notice first and foremost that Jesus refers to us as brothers and sisters. Look how verse 15 begins. If your brother sins against you, the church is meant to be a family. We are called to be brothers and sisters to one another. And having a culture of constructive correction begins there. Jesus says, if you've been sinned against, don't go and talk to someone else about it. Don't let it fester and grow on your own as you mull it over and bear a grudge. No, he says, go to that person. If we know we've been sinned against, we're to go to that person. And it's also true that if we know we have harmed someone or sinned against someone, we're to go to them. Take a look at what Jesus says in Matthew 5 and compare it to his words in Matthew 18. Jesus says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there and go before, there before the altar and go First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And here in Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Notice how in both contexts they're referred to as brothers. We're a family. And also notice in both contexts, the commandment is to go. If you're the one who offended, go. If you're the one who is offended, go. And we are called to make sure that there's, there's, a, there's a, a call for self-correction. If we realize we've done something wrong, we should go to the other person. But there's also a call for correction within the community, that we would go to one another. We also need to remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7. Make sure you get that plank out of your eye before you start going for the speck in someone else's eye. We need to make sure that self-correction is happening in our lives. But this emphasis on brother is really important. We need to have a culture of correction within our family because our father is a, is a father who lovingly disciplines us. In Hebrews 12, verse 5, 
The author of Hebrews says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he received. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We discipline and, and are engaged in correction as brothers and sisters because our Father sets the tone for discipline and He does it in a loving way with the aim so that in the end, even though it's painful in the moment, it's not pleasant. It seems painful rather than pleasant, but it yields fruit in the long run. So we are supposed to invite correction into our lives. We understand that God is our Father. He wants to discipline us. He wants to correct us because He loves us. And because of that, we should welcome correction from our brothers and sisters. Listen to the wisdom from Proverbs 27, verse 5 and 6. It says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds. Sometimes discipline hurts. Sometimes correction hurts. But this is what all of us are called to receive. We should be wanting correction. It's part of growth. It's a faithful thing to happen. And so right now, if you're watching from home, you can tell this to the person uh, on the couch or the chair beside you. Right now, you can just tell the person uh, down the row or the person beside you right now. Just turn to them right now and tell them, you have permission. Tell them that. You have permission. We need to understand that being corrected is a good thing. That we need to fight against our knee-jerk impulse to be defensive and to be hurt and emphasis on the wound and not on the faithfulness and emphasis on the pain but not on the fruit that will come of it. That we need to have a culture. This is who we are as a people. It's not just top-down from the leaders to the members. It's to be happening all of the time that we would lovingly be correcting one another. We all have blind spots and we need one another to help us see them. But how are we supposed to do this? Galatians 6 verse 1 is really instructive. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. So when we have these corrective conversations, we're not just venting. (laughs) We're not just getting something off of our... No, we're making sure that we're being incredibly gentle in how we do it. To be gentle, another way to translate that is to be reasonable. To follow logic, to follow reason, to not jump to conclusions. We need to be so careful. Our our sphere of, 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 of correction deals with what people do, not why they do it. It deals with what we can see on the outside, not on what's going on on the inside. Why people do things and what's going on on the inside, that's God's sphere. Our sphere is just what we can simply observe. And we need to understand that sometimes we see things and what we see is wrong. And so when we correct people, we start by saying, listen, can I just ask you a couple of questions? Because I I heard you say this, or "I, I saw you do this. Can you help me understand why you did that. 
So, so begin, frame it like a question. Don't say, I know what you did and I know why you did it. That's a really bad way to start. That's not being gentle. That's not being reasonable. We'll do what one of our elders, Dennis Baggett, always says. When you put two and two together, oftentimes you get 22 instead of four. And we make it a way bigger thing than it needs to be, where if we would just slow down, check our own eyes, not for specks, but for planks, and then make sure that we are being gentle in how we're correcting. And then notice it says, keep a watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Not just tempted to fall into the sin that they're engaged in, but tempted from the more, the more subtle sins like self-righteousness and being smug and thinking that you're better than the person or being judgmental. We've got to keep watch on ourselves. And again, notice how in Galatians 6, the word brothers is used there. We're a family. God is our father. We are brothers and sisters. That's why we engage in correction. James chapter 5, verses 19 to 20 says, My brothers, there it is again, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from, this, from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. We're called to bring people back. Matthew 18 says we gain our brother. Galatians 6 says our brother is restored. So it's, it, it starts with, when we think about church discipline, we just have to understand we've got to give one another permission to speak into our lives. We've got to be careful and gentle and, and correct one another in a loving way. But what happens if they don't listen to you? What happens if you go to your brother one-on-one, -on -one, but they don't respond, they don't repent? What happens next? Well, Jesus then lays out a process for how this is to work. So healthy church discipline, firstly, must begin with a culture of constructive correction. And secondly, it must involve escalating levels of intervention. Escalating levels of of intervention. This is where church discipline so often gets off track is people jump to level three or to level four rather than taking the first step. So the escalating levels, they're right here. Verse 15, it starts one-on-one. -on -one. Jesus couldn't be any more clear here. Between you and him alone. So if we are offended or, or if we think someone is wandering from the truth or we think someone is engaged in, in sinful behavior, we go to them one on one. But if they don't listen, then we include more people. Jesus says in verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So then we have the witnesses. So the the situation is getting more serious, and so you start to include more people. And these witnesses can be so helpful because they can so often act as a mediator. Because you're seeing the, the situation from this perspective, they're seeing the situation from this perspective, and you can get this third angle, that this, this alternate point of view. And 99 times out of 100, the issue gets resolved at this stage, where People real. oh, I, was, I didn't see it like that, or I didn't see, oh, now I get it. And there's forgiveness, there's reconciliation, there's restoration. But in the rare occasions, if the person repeatedly refuses to repent, even at this stage, there's a broader stage where the entire church membership is to be involved. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, 
tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So if this person continues to not repent, then the entire church family gets involved in trying to, again, Galatians 6, gently going after this person, trying to reason with them, praying for them, trying to point them in the right direction. But if the person still refuses to listen, and if their sin is is open and flagrant, and if it's serious, and if they are unrepentant, then the church needs needs to stop and to say, this person claims to believe in Jesus, but their behavior is not in line with their belief or what they claim to believe. And, and the church members need, need, to, need to recognize and understand, based off their ongoing behavior and refusal to change, we can't take their profession of faith seriously. We, we, we can't believe what they say they believe because their behavior is so incongruent. You're, you're saying that you're a Christian, but the way that you're living is telling another story. A Christian is supposed to live a life of transformation and representation, and you're showing evidence of neither. And this is a very serious thing. This is, this is the keys. This is the loosening and the bounding. This is, the, this is, this is a, a serious matter. Baptism welcomes a church member in. And here we're talking about church discipline to its ultimate extent. Some people call it excommunication. Where someone is removed from being a member. Because in order to be a member, you have to be a believer. And, and to be a believer, you need to be a disciple who's learning to obey all that Jesus has taught. And essentially what the church has to tell an individual in this scenario is, based on how you're living, you love what you're doing more than you love Jesus. And Jesus must be first. I mean, Jesus has to be first among even the good things we do. He he can't be second to sinful behavior. So they are to be treated like tax collectors and Gentiles. It's interesting, Matthew is recording what Jesus said here. Do you know what Matthew's occupation was before he started following Jesus? He was a tax. He knew firsthand what it was like to be treated like a tax collector. Like someone who is an outsider. Like someone who has chosen not to go the way of the people of God. If you don't know the background of, of tax collectors, you have the Jewish people and they are living under, un, under Roman military occupation and the tax collectors were people who were ethnically Jewish but were siding with the Romans and actually profiting, over, profiting on the oppression of their own people. And so when the Jewish people got together to to worship or to pray or to hear from the Old Testament scriptures, and if a tax collector were to come, they would say, you don't belong among us. You might claim to be Jewish, but the way that you're living doesn't line up with what it means to be the people of God. So what Jesus is saying here is if someone is claiming to be a Christian but isn't living like it, then you treat them like a tax collector. 
or you treat them like a, a Gentile, which just means the rest of the world, the other nations. So if, if our church were to get to this stage, this highly unlikely stage, the final step in the church discipline process, actually it's not the final step, I'll get to that, I'll get to that later, well, how do you how do you treat someone like like a tax collector? Does it mean like every time you you know every time you uh, say their name, you spit in the mud and kick the dirt? Does it mean that you don't make eye contact with them? Does it mean that you ignore them if you bump into them in the grocery store? No. I mean, how did Jesus treat tax collectors and Gentiles? He loved them. He wanted to see them saved. He knew that they weren't. He knew that there were some things that needed to change in their life. And he taught them accordingly. And so in the same way, we just begin, if, if, if we were to find ourselves in the situation, we would treat this individual like they were a non-Christian, which is how they're living. You want to live like a non-Christian? We're going to treat you like a non-Christian. And so it's not like we're not going to talk to you, but when we talk to you, we're going to talk to you about following Jesus. We're, we're in the same way that when we're talking to our unbelieving friends and neighbors and family members, we're always looking for ways to, to steer people, to steer the conversation, to tell them about Jesus. In the same way, we're trying to point these people towards Jesus. In the same way that we, won't, we wouldn't relate to a non-Christian on the heart level of what our life is really about. That, that's something we only talk to other Christians about. And so we would no longer sp speak to that person in that in that way. So, healthy church discipline must begin with a culture of constructive correction. We're taking the planks out of our own eyes. We're inviting people to correct us. We are being gentle in how we correct other people. It's what we do. And then it involves these escalating levels of intervention. If the person continues to dig in their heels and refuses to, uh, to repent... And then we must keep this in mind that healthy church discipline must be carried out with gospel motivation. It must be carried out with gospel motivation. So turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And this passage of Scripture uh, works sort of like a, it's, it's, it's like a case study of of the church discipline method being put into place in a local church here in Corinth as Paul is writing to them this letter. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 
Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not, it is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. That's a really heavy passage. He's talking about purging the evil person in verse 13. In verse 2, he says, remove them. In verse 11, do not associate them. In verse 5, deliver them over to Satan. Again, church is serious. We're talking heaven and hell. And we see the seriousness here come out so clearly that the situation is you have someone who is in an intimate relationship with their stepmother. We don't know how they ended up in this relationship or what the background is or what the ages were or whatever it is. We know that this is forbidden in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 8. Paul also adds in verse 1 that even in the world they think this is weird and messed up. Even the, even the unbelievers who have a totally different sexual ethic, they're looking at this situation and being like, that's just wrong. And what we see as Paul is responding to this situation, we see three aspects of gospel motivation when it comes to church discipline. Here's the first one, the preservation of the church's witness the preservation of the church's witness because the world is looking at what's going on with this guy and his relationship and they're saying, that's wrong. And it's, it reflects poorly on the church. It reflects poorly on Jesus that if someone who claims to follow Jesus and what Jesus taught about marriage is, is now living like this, the outside world is just confused. I mean, I thought, you, I thought you guys were supposed to be moral people, upright people, righteous people. Why are you living in this way? Look, at, look with me at verse 9. It says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. There's a different standard for the world, is what he's saying. Or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters, since you would need to go out of the world. Paul says, no, no, I want you to reach those people. Christians should regularly be interacting with non-Christians, with sketchy past and sketchy presence. But Paul here gives out the warning. Look, look at what he says. He says in verse 11, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone. Here's, here's the big difference. Anyone who bears the name of brother. Again, if this person is claiming to be a part of the family, they shouldn't be living this way. And then he says in verse 11, don't even eat with the person. 
Remember, eating in, in, in that culture was, was this idea that, that we're at peace, that as we're sharing a meal, as we're breaking bread, we are, we, everything is okay. You don't break bread with your, with your enemies. You don't eat with your enemies. And so Paul says, well, listen, don't even, don't even eat with, don't, don't pretend like everything's okay. And the implication here, of course, is that when we take bread at that special time in our worship services in a cup, and when we take that bread and we remember Christ's body and we reflect on the fact that we are the body of Christ, that we pass that bread in that cup by saying, we've, we've examined ourselves, as, as Pastor Chris made clear a couple of weeks ago, that we're supposed to examine not just if we've sinned personally, but if we have anything against any of our brothers and sisters. So we pass the bread to the next person, post-COVID, obviously. Right now it's all sanitized. But anyway, when we pass the bread, we're saying we're, we're at peace with one another. We're part of the same body. And Paul is saying, this is why it's called excommunication, because they're apart from communion. That, that there isn't that participation in the, in the body. And so part of having someone removed as a member is to say that you, you're, you're not welcome to participate in communion because you're not at peace with God and therefore not at peace with us. He says, do not associate. But remember, we've got to be thinking about tax collectors, Gentiles. And Paul here is being clear. We've, we've got to evangelize people who, who live this way. But we need to be really careful about people who live this way but are claiming to be a Christian. That's a whole different story. So the preservation of the church's witness is important. Secondly, the, the preparation for the final judgment. The preparation for the final judgment. He says in verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan. Now, what is he saying there? Well, remember, there's really two paths in this life. You either follow Jesus or you follow the ways of this world. And who's the ruler of this world? Who's the prince of the power of the air? Satan. Now, you mean, it doesn't mean that you're a Satan worshiper or that you see manifestations of demonic activity every day of your life. In fact, Satan some kind of prefers to do the espionage thing and, and to fly under the radar. But when he says, hand him over to Satan, he's just simply saying, out from under the authority of the church of Jesus Christ. So just let him be. If he wants to live like a non-Christian, let him live like a true non-Christian. Then he says, for the, the destruction of the flesh. This is not saying that Paul wants this guy to die. Notice how he contrasts flesh with spirit, the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit, when Paul uses flesh and spirit in, this, in close proximity in the same sentence or the same paragraph like that, he's contrasting what the, what the New Testament would, would, would call other translations, the sinful nature, the, the, the part of us, the residual sin that lives inside of us. Even though we have a new heart and have been transformed, there's still parts of us that want to sin. Paul's saying, hand him over to Satan so that that flesh, that sinful nature inside of him, that it would be put to death, that he would follow the full consequences of, an, of his actions and like the prodigal son, eat some slop and realize where he's fallen from so that he would be able to repent. It says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It's preparation for the final judgment. Again, there's a, there's a correlation. The keys, loosening and binding of what's happening on earth and what's happening on heaven. 
in heaven. So Paul's saying, take this drastic action so that he can learn now before it's too late. If he goes on living like a pretend Christian, he's going to have to give an account on judgment day. So there's a gospel motivation. Paul's heart here is not to punish this guy, but to restore him so that he would be changed. And then thirdly, it's protection from sin's spread. Protection from sin spread. In verse 6, he says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He's, he's using this analogy of leaven in bread. And that when leaven is, is put into some dough, that dough rises. The dough is changed. It makes its way. It's just a little bit of leaven and a whole pile of dough. The whole dough will start to, not just one little part, all of it is affected. And then Paul here is following on this metaphor of unleavened bread at Passover. And part of getting ready for Passover is getting rid of all of the, all of the leaven. And he, then he points to Jesus. Again, gospel motivation. Jesus, our Passover lamb. The Passover lamb died in the place of the people of Israel. Jesus died in our place because he died in our place. We need to make sure that we are living a life that honors him and represents him well. Otherwise, sin will spread. Think about the other metaphors for the church, like the church is like a field. Think about how weeds in a field, if you, just, if, if you just do nothing, it's not like nothing will happen. If you do nothing, something always happens. The weeds will grow. Think about a building. If you have mold growing in a building and don't deal with it, if you do nothing, something will happen and that something will be more mold. Think about, think about a body with a disease. If you, if you do nothing, and, and you allow that disease to spread. Something will happen if you do nothing. And this is why the church needs to take these kinds of actions. All for the purpose of gospel motivation. So that it doesn't affect the whole lump of dough. So that this Christian says, well, look at the way he's living sexually. That, well, then uh, that should mean that I can live however I want. And that my substance abuse temptation, I should just give in to that. Because, because if he can give in to let his, let his sexual desires control him, then I, I can allow substances to control him. And then someone else starts to look at the, the drunk guy and the sexually immoral guy and says, well, I'm just going to be as greedy as I want to be. Because it seems as though... We can just live however we want and it spreads and it spreads and it spreads. But there's, so the gospel motivation is that we've got to protect the church. Now turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This is the last a passage in God's word that we're going to turn to today and it's filled with hope. Now as you're turning there, you might be wondering, aren't there supposed to be escalating steps of intervention? Didn't Paul skip all those steps by saying, hey, kick that guy out of the church? Shouldn't someone go to him privately and say, you know, you shouldn't be doing what you're doing with your stepmother? Well, there, there are escalating steps of intervention, but the difference with the 1 Corinthians 5 situation was that the whole church already knew about it. See, the idea is we don't want to shame people or embarrass people unnecessarily, especially if they're unaware that what they're doing is wrong. And so you start with one-on-one, -on -one, and then you include a small group of witnesses, and then you have it escalate. But in, 
in 1 Corinthians 5, they were boasting about how tolerant and open-minded they were. So Paul skipped all those steps because the whole church already knew. But then, look at we get a window into how we think the whole church responded. Paul doesn't name the situation specifically, but he describes someone in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. Look at this. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. The, the whole church was involved in some sort of disciplinary action. Punishment seems like a strong a word there, but it, it, it's simply a, a drastic action that's being taken in order to bring about righteousness. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So this may be the person from 1 Corinthians 5. It may be someone else. But here we see, I said that the final step is not excommunication. The final step is not removing someone from membership. No, the final step is the ultimate restoration. That is the final step in the process of church discipline. And that's what we, we see here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And that needs to be the heart, gospel motivation in how, we, in how we carry this out. Jonathan Lehman, who wrote a very helpful book on the topic of church discipline, said that, that when we engage in church discipline, we need to have really four things motivating us, all centered around love. Love for the individual, knowing that, like the prodigal son, they're just going to end up eating slop sooner or later. So we need to step in and correct them. Love for the church to try to protect and preserve the purity of the church so that the sin doesn't spread. Love for the world, that we would maintain a consistent witness that wouldn't be confusing for people that were looking from the outside in. And love for the Lord, that our Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, that he suffered and died for us, that he has given us the keys of the kingdom, that we need to take this very seriously as we think about church discipline. And we began by talking about our mission statement. The first part of our mission statement is the Great Commission, make disciples. And the second part of our mission statement is Matthew 22, the great commandment, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, our neighbor, the fellow church member that's sinning, the other church members, and the watching world. We must be motivated by love because we have a loving Father who is committed to disciplining us. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we love you and we look to you right now. We know that this has been a, a heavy topic and a lot of information to receive and to process. Lord, I pray for the protection and preservation of our church, Lord, that you would help foster this culture of correction, that we would build one another up by speaking the truth and love to one another, and that you would guide us by your spirit. Lord, we thank you that you have called us and you have called us to a high calling. Help us to be faithful in fulfilling that calling as individual Christians and as members of the local church. God, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.